So I don't know about you, but this past week, I felt a little low. Not like down or depressed or anything like that, but kind of like, what, what now? Holy Week this year was absolutely incredible. And I don't think I'm the only one who thinks that. It, it seriously was incredible. It was hard to believe how high and how dramatic and how encouraging Holy Week was this year. As I said before, I think it was two weeks ago, Palm Sunday, you can't prepare yourself for Holy Week. It's like a, a storm, a, a power outage, a pandemic even, <laughs> and boy was I right this year. This past week, in the, the aftermath of such drama, such intensity, many of you perhaps felt a bit low. Now, among mainline Protestant churches, and I, I believe Roman Catholic churches, this Sunday, the Sunday after Easter Sunday, is actually called Low Sunday. It's often marked by lower attendance. Not necessarily the case this morning. <laughs> Praise God. Lower spirits, lower energy. Um, I actually heard of a church in Wisconsin, I think it was La Crosse, Wisconsin, that brought in a jazz band on Low Sunday to play the blues. And they actually had more people at that service than they had at the Easter service. So it's too late uh, for us to do that this morning. Uh, but the question that lingers for us, I think, is, what now? What now, now that Easter is over? Now that Jesus, for us, has departed, now that our normal lives have returned, what now? That is the question that I plan to engage in this message this morning, but also in this new series as a whole. So Easter is often perceived as an end, as, as the end of Lent, right? The end of this long journey through the wilderness, a season of penitence and reflection and discipline, an, an end. But in the Revised Common Lectionary and the liturgical calendar, Easter Sunday is actually the beginning of a new season of the Christian year, the season of Easter. And so from April 9th all the way to May 28th, the day of Pentecost, we will be celebrating the season of Easter, and so these banners will stay up. This is a season in which we learn how to live resurrection lives after Jesus has departed. And with this change in season comes a change in biblical genre, which I've tried to do as we follow the lectionary this year. So during Epiphany, you probably remember, we walked through the Gospels, mostly the Gospel of Matthew. And then during the season of Lent, we pivoted and looked at the Old Testament Psalms, with a few exceptions. And during the season of Easter, we are going to be looking at a New Testament epistle, a letter, and that is the letter of First Peter, the Apostle Peter. <clears throat> Last week, uh, I actually preached on Second Corinthians, a letter written by Paul, not Peter. And we, we looked at excerpts in chapters 4 and 5. So we looked at uh, this mixed nature of Christian existence 
in which death and life are held together, believers carrying the death of Jesus in their bodies so that the life of Jesus can be manifested. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5.17, a famous verse that says, If anyone is in Christ, if anyone trusts in Christ, there is new creation. A new world has been opened up, a new realm. Now, Christians are citizens of this new world. That's what the Bible says, and we know that. But the old world continues to exist. And so, because we are citizens of this new realm that is, by and large, invisible and growing, that means that we are exiles, aliens, fugitives even, in the old world. This experience of being treated as an exile or an outsider and the affliction and trial which comes with it exactly matches the experience of the audience to whom 1 Peter was addressed. If you were to read the verses before our passage for this morning, it it says the letter is addressed to the elect exiles of the dispersion, of the, the scattering, the diaspora, In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all regions in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. Because of their new identity as, as citizens in this new kingdom, these believers lived as aliens, exiles. And they face affliction, persecution, and and pressure. And so this letter, 1 Peter, is written to encourage these believers, to help them keep going amidst the the sufferings and afflictions of daily life. I think this letter, which has been in the lectionary, it's not like I planned it per se, but I think it's perfect for us right now. I think it's perfect for us in this post-Easter Sunday moment when we are asking the question, what now? So in just a moment, we're going to open the text and read our first selection uh, of First Peter this morning. But before we do that, friends, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are alive. <clears throat> we no longer speak of you in the past tense, but always in the present. Lord, you are here, living. But it is true, Lord, that we don't see you in the flesh as we see our neighbors, our loved ones, our relatives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would walk up and down these aisles this morning, touch us, encourage us, breathe on us, help us to navigate life in your apparent absence until you return and take us home. Soften our hearts, soften mine, and please just feed us through your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I invite you to turn with me then uh, to First Peter chapter one. First Peter one. It is in the New Testament. Um, it's going to be pretty close to the end in the Pew Bible, page uh, one thousand and fourteen. If you need it, and. Verses 3 through 12, believe it or not, comprise one single sentence in Greek. (laughs) 
Um, and English versions, translators have helpfully put in some punctu- punctuation to help us out. And so we're going to just be looking at verses 3 through 9 this morning. Um, this is a speech of sorts, which opens the letter. It's a speech of encouragement. And it, it sets the tone. It, it uh, forecasts some of the themes that will be addressed in the letter. But it also uh, curries favor with the readers that... Uh, builds rapport with them. It, it tells them that we, we come in peace, in a way. This is not a letter of a criticism uh, or confrontation, but, but this is a letter of encouragement and actually consolation is often what it's called. So 1 Peter 1, we're going to be reading verses 3 through 9 in the ESV. And as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? First Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You may be seated. So after the highs of Easter, Holy Week, and now with Jesus, for us, Jesus gone, why should we be encouraged? Or what what motivates us to keep going through our mixed and messy lives? What has God done And what is God doing which compels us and inspires us to keep going? 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, tell us that God has recreated us. And and He has redestined us toward unimaginable new realities. It tells us that the the trials and afflictions that we face right now are actually God's means of strengthening our, our trust and moving us to eternal salvation. So the lows, the, the trials that you face, they're not evidence that God has cast you away or that God has been taken away from you. No. 
Rather, they are evidence that you are exactly where God wants you to be. Okay. Now let's look into the text, starting at verse 3. The passage opens with a blessing. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It opens with this tone of praise and adoration. But I want you to think of the original auditors, the original readers, suffering daily persecution, prosecution, affliction, uh, being arrested, being ridiculed, spat upon. Do you think they would want to bless God in this way? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who allows us to be beaten daily. I imagine that they're wondering, why, Peter? Why bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when he hasn't returned yet? When our lives are in shambles, we're suffering? Why? Peter says, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) We get an answer immediately in verse 3 question is, what has God done for us, Peter, and and what is God doing that would compel us not only to praise God in this way, but to continue devoting our lives to Him in faithful service? What what has He done? What is He doing? Verse 3, the second half of it says, according to His great mercy, God has re-begotten us. That is the word. It's a, a rare word in the New Testament. I believe it occurs only twice, and the other instance is in First Peter. And to, to beget something is to bring about its existence. That includes birth, rebirth, but it's almost like to say uh, he, he sired a child. It's, it's the whole process of, of bringing something new into existence. It says that God has re-begotten us. He's recreated us. And then in this passage, we get three of the same prepositions, toward, toward, toward. Or here it's translated two, two, and four. The idea is he's, he's re-begotten us and redestined us toward three realities, which are really different labels for the same one thing. You can be encouraged in your post-Easter life You can keep going even now because God has redestined you toward hope. Hope is the first reality. Not only hope, though, but it says a hope that is living. Living. Now, hope is the anticipation or expectation of Things which have yet to be realized, realities which have yet to occur. So you can hope for any number of things. We know this. But some hope is living and some hope is dead. So let me just give you a few examples, all right? Now, if I were to move to Los Angeles, let's say I want to open up a chain of designer clothing stores. Baptist Body Works or something like that. (laughs) Let's say I want to 
start the next uh, hit reality TV show showcasing my work. Friends, that is what in the, we in the business would call a dead hope, right? Another example. Let's say we want to bring our beautiful son Reed to the playground, Moore Street Playground. And let's say we're hoping that he not once fills his mouth with wood chips. Living hope or a dead hope? <laughs> get, you get where I'm going. Now let's say you've applied to your favorite college. And you're aware of the, the grade range of accepted applicants, the SAT scores and whatnot. Your grades are right in there. Your, your scores are good. Good essay, good references, and you, you send it off. Let's say that hope is living. Hope for life and abundance after suffering and death is based on, is, is promised to us because of or based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The idea is our hope of eternal restoration is as living as Jesus is right now. And I'll tell you, friends, Jesus is not dead. Far from it. He has redestined us to a hope that is living and to an inheritance that is unfading. We get the noun, inheritance, and then cascading of adjectives after. Unfading, imperishable, undefiled, etc. Inheritance. Now, we don't think about inheritance as much today. We do, but not as much as they did in antiquity. Um, the historical record is full of debates and disputes, laws about inheritance and estate rights and things like that. And so it's all over the Bible and the New Testament in particular. Like hope, inheritance is something you look forward to receiving when a parent or guardian passes away. And in the, the national consciousness of Israel, the primary inheritance that they were promised was a, a beautiful plot of land, the land of Israel. And they entered this land, they pitched their tents in this land, it came to be their place, their home, they loved the land. And this land was taken from them, they were exiled from it because they broke covenant with Yahweh. Peter, I think, is, is imagining inheritance in these terms, but here he says that believers await an inheritance that is imperishable. Now, the land of Israel and the, the produce gleaned from it, the, the wood extracted from its, its trees used to build homes, those things were perishable. They would spoil, they would fade over time. But Peter is speaking about an entirely different kind of inheritance. An inheritance unsusceptible to the, the, the wearing effect of time and climate. It's unstealable, can't be destroyed by moth or rust, etc. It's an inheritance, he says, that is currently kept in the vault of heaven where God lives, 
guarded by, by God Himself, it's protected, preserved for us. We can be encouraged to keep going today because God has redestined us toward a hope that is living and an inheritance that is incorruptible and unfading. And lastly, it says that God has redestined us, verse 5, towards salvation. The language is a bit different, um, but we have the same Greek preposition here. It's for some reason translated for, guarded through faith for a salvation as opposed to to. But if you were to look at it in Greek, you'd see those same words and these three items that are all set in parallel, that we are guarded, destined, our trajectory is set toward salvation, ready to be revealed. Salvation uh, in the Greek of this period could mean deliverance, rescue, or healing from any number of conditions or circumstances. That's a very common word in the Roman Empire. The, the emperor was said to bring about salvation, economic, military, infrastructural, salvation, etc. But you could be saved from a disease, you could be saved from enemies, you could be saved from captivity or slavery, etc. So it's a very holistic view of restoration and of abundance and peace. It says, we are destined for a salvation. And it says it's guarded for us. God, as it were, is standing by the vault like a sentry, guarding it. But what is he guarding it through? But by what means does God guard us for, I think, Hope, inheritance, and salvation. What does the text say in verse 5? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Faith is another common word in the literature of this period, but what it really means, friends, is relational trust. It does not mean belief in certain facts, statements. It doesn't mean accepting certain information, these, these ten statements as true. Here, what it means is reliance, trust, dependence. It's knowing that your salvation depends on Jesus, even if you know nothing else. Our Destiny is guarded through faith or trust. And Peter says that the trials, the afflictions, the sufferings that we face comprise the, the furnace that purifies and refines our faith. We get this common image of a metal worker smelting gold. Precious substance in antiquity and still today, but a substance that needed to be heated to 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit to be melted, to be separated from the other alloys that make up its ore, to unleash the glory of gold, you needed some heat. Lots of it. 
In the same way, Peter says that our faith, infinitely more precious than gold, if it is to be as glowing as it can be, as strong, as stable, as praiseworthy as it can be, it needs fire. It needs to be put in the furnace. The sufferings and afflictions we experience, even those that aren't directly connected to our our confession of Christ as Lord, physical diseases and ailments, depression, anxiety, other mental health disorders, crises, family tension, various sorts of death that we carry in our bodies. This is the furnace that God has given us to refine and preserve our faith so that on the last day it can stand glowing, glorious. Apparently, these believers already have some faith. They've never seen Jesus in the flesh, but they love him. They don't even see him now. Sound like someone else? But they trust him and rejoice with great joy. Going through trials is refining their faith. And verse 9, it's, it's moving them toward the reception of the outcome of their faith, which is the salvation of their souls. And souls here does not mean that the immaterial part of the person disconnected from the physical souls in ancient Greek, refers to mind, body, spirit, everything that makes up a human being. By going through trials right now, you are actually moving toward the salvation of your entire selves. So believers facing anguish and affliction and trials, they're encouraged to keep going. To keep going in this post-Easter Sunday moment. And and they're encouraged on the basis of, of God's having recreated them. And redestining them toward complete and eternal salvation. What keeps us connected to all of these realities, what keeps us connected to Jesus is not perfect obedience. It's not sinlessness. It's not outward shine, glory. It's trust. It's, I don't know much about theology, but I just, I know that I need Jesus. It's about trust. And that trust, that dependence on Jesus, believe it or not, is actually strengthened and made firm through suffering. So after the the heights of Easter, how can we keep going? As we carry the death of Jesus in our bodies, how can we stay compelled the promise of eternal salvation, and the fact that suffering strengthens the faith that gets us there, I think gives us some help as we keep going. Danielle and I are raising 
a toddler, actually a number of toddlers at this point. And um, how do I put this? Sometimes we are bewildered (laughs) by some of the behavior uh, that is wrought by (laughs) some of our toddlers. I'm sure it'll keep going. And uh, so as, as these behaviors are going on, we will struggle through it and often we'll end up reading articles, listening to podcasts. Danielle does. Um, <laughs> and we'll learn that these behaviors are normal. <laughs> I could list them, but I don't want to put my kids in a bad light. They're normal. Not only are they normal, but these are actually vital developmental phases that help the child mature and grow. I'll tell you, though, knowing that they're normal doesn't take away the difficulty, the stress, the early-onset balding. That all remains. But it gives us energy, spiritual and emotional energy, to keep going keep moving. I think in the same way, friends, when we find out that the sufferings that we're experiencing as Christians are are, are not evidence that we are bad Christians, but when we learn that, that these things are normal, it doesn't take away the difficulty, but it helps us to keep going. It helps us to actually almost receive such experiences. Not as just regrettable incidents that come from living in a fallen world, but as God-provided means to strengthen and stabilize our faith. Those trials are the smelting furnace that refine our faith so that it can be as glorious and glowing as it can be when Christ returns. An untried or unsmelted faith can never be a genuine faith. And it's genuine faith, trust alone, that saves. As much as you can, then, in this post-Easter season, which is really a Extension of Easter. Try receiving, somehow receiving the trials that come your way. The family strife, the difficult diagnosis, the car troubles, the financial mess. Feel the suffering. Feel it. But don't let it get you stuck. Receive such things as the gifts of God that they are, gifts to help you keep going. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the furnace. Think of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the furnace in the Old Testament, and and we're there too, Lord. But whereas they stood still in the furnace, we are so often trying to escape. Lord, you went through the furnace 
a furnace far hotter than anything we'll ever go through. Help us to cling to you in that hot and painful space. And I pray that as a community of believers, a family, the body of Christ, that we would help encourage each other in that space. Please feed our souls as we continue to worship you because you are worth it. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.